On November 3, 1978, a beautiful 19-year-old young woman by the name of Teresa Allure completely disappeared from her college campus in the small borough of Lennoxville, Quebec, located approximately two hours east of Montreal. Upon being discovered missing, police and school officials determined it wasn't necessary to coordinate a search party to look for her, not around the campus, nor the surrounding areas. Five and a half months later, her body was found, only a few kilometers away from her campus residence. How she got there was unknown. How she died was also unknown. Now, almost 40 years later, her family is still searching for answers, trying to unravel the mysterious circumstances around her disappearance and cause of death. This unexplained tragedy leaves behind a shattered family still grappling for the truth, unable to put her to rest. So how did Teresa disappear? And more importantly, how did she die? Why had police and school officials refused to search for her? Join us now as we dig for answers into the cold case of Teresa Allure, untangling possible clues, motives, suspects, and theories into her disappearance and subsequent death. Teresa Allure was an intelligent 19-year-old college student attending her eighth week at Champlain College Regional School in Lennoxville, Quebec. It was her first year there, and she'd been excited for what was supposed to be a fresh start for her. By all accounts, Teresa was an adventurous, strong-willed, happy-go-lucky teenager. Her younger brother John, who was only five years younger, loved being around her and recalls what it was like growing up with her in a small Canadian suburb town of Quebec. The community was of the West Island of Montreal. I think it was how anyone else grew up in the, in the suburbs in, in many ways. So we lived next to the railway tracks. You cross the railway tracks, you know, there was like swampland over there and fields and etc. So that was our playground. The Allure children grew up in the 70s. A time when communities felt safer, neighbors knew one another, the kids played together in the streets. Parents didn't feel the need to be overly protective or worrisome about where their kids were playing at any given time. That's just the way it was. We sort of lived on a block and, you know, there's several families there. We were all friends. You know, it was sort of this sort of thing where we played each other's houses and borrow each other's toys. We walked to school, uh, went to the local elementary school. We played hockey. I remember hide-and-go-seek games around the neighborhood that would increasingly go on for blocks and blocks and go later and later into the night. If we had a curfew, I'm not aware of it. I would characterize it as the typical childhood in a Canadian suburb. And as the little brother, John adored his sister and absolutely loved spending time with her. 
Because of their age difference, there was little for them to have conflict about. I completely idolized her. What I remember, well, she permitted me to come with her on a bike ride. She permitted me to go downtown with her and, and even, you know, act as my, my chaperone. So my memories of her are, are really, really good. It's all about fun. I mean, a huge practical joker. She loved those kind of things. Uh, she loved puzzles and games and uh, wordplay and, and all of that. As much as John loved his big sister's humor, he also loved her sense of adventure. But that side of her was also the side he stated constantly pushed the boundaries of their parents' authority. John told us that Teresa would often hitchhike to get to where she wanted to go, something her parents did not condone. This freaked my parents out uh, an awful lot. You know, they would often warn her about hitchhiking. You just don't do it. In that era, it was, it was commonly done, that that was your mode of transportation. You didn't have a car. No bus or train ran on a reliable schedule. So why not do this? Despite being warned by their parents not to hitchhike, John tells us about a time when Teresa attempted to do it with him in tow. I recall one incident in particular where um, she wanted to go downtown. So typically you, you take a, a train to downtown Montreal, take you about a half hour to, to get there. You know, the agenda was something like, let's look at the toy shops, let's go to, you know, the greatest record store on, on St. Catherine, let's have lunch somewhere, and then and then we got to get, get home. And on the way home, I don't know why this happened, she decided we weren't going to take the train, that we were going to hitchhike. And I, I remember standing on the, the entranceway to the, the highway with our, our thumbs out, and we weren't getting picked up. And Teresa said, you go hide in the bushes. And I did. And, you know, at this time, she's, uh, I guess, 17, something like that. It's a very attractive young woman. And sure enough, within, within minutes, a truck stops. So she goes to get in the cab. I run out of the bushes. The guy in the truck sees me and decides, no, I don't. I, that's not what I wanted. I, I didn't want this girl and Junior. I wanted the girl. And uh, so he drove off and left us. But very early on, that was a telling sign to me that things might be more dangerous out there than you'd expect. John also tells us about other times when Teresa rebelled against her parents, going on over 100-kilometer bike rides, crossing over the Quebec border, and sometimes even going camping all on her own not something typically tackled by a young woman in the 70s. Teresa's parents didn't completely know how to gain control of the strong-willed, thrill-seeking daughter. As to be expected, some friction started to develop between them. Teenagers generally attempt to gain a degree of independence during this stage, but Teresa seemed to do so in a manner unusual for a girl her age, and especially during that era. Somewhere along the line, John says, things hit a bit of a tipping point. So for a period, dropped out of school. She was working at a McDonald's for a while. Not great prospects. She was working at a ski factory. And she got a taste of what 
you know, life was going to be like without an education. There had been a lot of, obviously, conflict um, in our house because she was, you know, she was coming up in the late 70s. And I think that was a very confusing time for my parents, who were brought up, you know, the 40s and 50s. And I don't think knew how to deal with it. Uh, eventually, Teresa moved out. She lives on her own in an apartment, as I say, and, and, and worked these sort of trade jobs. When Teresa moved out, she moved to Montreal and was living with a roommate. During one of her jobs at a ski shop, she met a young guy named Vlad from Calgary, who soon became her boyfriend. And for a time, she was happy. She was living like an adult. No rules. She could be her carefree self and not have to worry about upsetting her parents with her adventuresome ways. But at some point, Teresa decided that that wasn't the path she wanted for herself. She decided she wanted to return to school, but she knew she wouldn't be able to afford it on her own, and she approached her parents for help. She came back to my mother, and she said, I want to go back to school. If I go back, will you pay for it? And my parents said, yeah, of course we will. So by the time she finds herself at Champlain College in the fall of 78, she had settled down con considerably. By the time she reached, you know, 18, she sort of sowed all her wild oats in the four years previous. Did she smoke pot? Yes. Did she, you know, drink underage? We all did. By the time she went back to school, she was dedicated. People at that school have mentioned that she was more mature than anyone else. And not just because she was a year older than because she dropped out of school. Uh, she was an excellent student. She's a straight-A student when all of this happened. So with her parents' assistance, she was enrolled at Champlain College in the eastern township of Quebec. Her other brother, Andre, who was only a year younger than her, was also enrolled at the same school. The Champlain campus itself was located in a very tiny borough of Sherbrooke called Lennoxville. In fact, it's so tiny that in the 70s there was virtually nothing there. A few cross streets, maybe one motel, a dry cleaners, a bar, a couple of corner stores, and that's it. However, where Teresa and her brother lived was just off campus. King's Hall was a residence about 15 kilometers away from the main campus in a small town called Compton. During that time, King's Hall housed about 240 Champlain students. About 100 students lived in the main building, while the remaining 140 students were housed in an adjacent building called the Gillard House. An important thing to note is that for the students living off campus, the only form of transportation available was a 20-minute shuttle bus that ran every hour between the hours of 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. But if you missed the 6 p.m. bus, the next one didn't arrive at the school until 11 p.m. So if you didn't want to wait for the 11 o'clock shuttle bus, your only choices were to either pay for an expensive cab ride, walk, or hitchhike. Most students opted for hitchhiking, which the college actually condoned. In fact, they didn't only condone it, they gave tips on how their students could do it safely in their school handbook. One of Teresa's classmates named Suzanne recalls what the handbook stated. Oh, to not to hitchhike alone. We were always told that we had to hitchhike in pairs, uh, suggested not to hitchhike in the dark, to be weary of whose car we got into. 
on the Friday morning of November 3, 1978, at 8 a.m., Teresa and her friends took the first shuttle bus over to the main campus in Lenoxville. On that day, she decided to wear a white t-shirt, blue corduroy pants that she'd borrowed from a friend, and a beige knee-length sweater. She went sockless and wore a pair of Chinese slippers, along with a long, dark green scarf she'd been given as a birthday gift when she turned 19. Teresa was an attractive young woman. She had big, beautiful blue eyes and shoulder-length wavy red hair. Her skin was porcelain white, peppered with adorable freckles. Her brother John describes her as being beanpole thin. Her classmates described her as someone with a bubbly personality, always smiling, a twinkle in her eye, and always happy-go-lucky. It seemed anyone who knew her loved being around her. She just had that magnetic, warm type of personality. Well, after attending two classes that morning, Teresa later went to the main dining hall for lunch, where she had a brief conversation with her brother Andre. She then spoke with two of her friends. She's seen there by a couple of friends, and the conversation goes something like this. One girl says, hey, do you want to come to my parents' place in Hemingford for the weekend? Teresa says, no, I have to study. Two other girls say, hey, do you want to come by our dorm room tonight around 9 o'clock? We're, we're going to listen to records. We're going to listen to Cat Stevens and Peter Gabriel or something like that. Teresa says, I have a book report to complete, uh, but I might stop by later, maybe a little after 9. And then after the lunch, she has some classes. The last bus is leaving. I, I guess it's around 5 or 6, as I said. Somebody on the bus observes Teresa on the campus trying to catch the bus. And she misses it. And that was the last time Teresa was seen alive. What's particularly unusual is how long it took for anyone to realize that she was even missing. This is the thing. An entire week goes by before anyone considers that she's missing. And I think if I'm remembering it right, on the one hand, Teresa would often hitchhike and go back to Montreal. She had an apartment there. Well, she still had an association with that apartment. She knew the, the roommate. And so if she wanted to, to get away on a weekend, she'd often go back to Montreal. In fact, she had the week before done just that. She hitchhiked back to Montreal, stayed there the weekend, hitchhiked back to campus. She didn't always hitchhike. Sometimes she would she would take the train. You could do that. So some people thought, typically, okay, you know, Monday, maybe she's not in a class where she's supposed to be. Where's Teresa? Well, you know, maybe she went to Montreal and maybe she uh, she decided to take another day, this kind of thing. The other thing is you, you got to realize is that she was new. She'd only been there for eight weeks. Um, so making new friends, and some of those new friends, you know, they didn't know everything about her. They didn't know what her patterns were, etc. But I do find fault with one area of this, and that's the school. Surely they had a responsibility to know where their students were. Oh, you know, why was there no attendance taken, or you know, why didn't you do a dorm count, etc. Nevertheless, a full week goes by, and someone tells my brother. Said, we haven't seen Teresa. And he's like, what do you mean you haven't seen Teresa? And uh, they're like, nobody's seen her. And, and so he immediately phones my mother. Teresa's mother then instructed Andre to go immediately to the director of the school and inform him 
that his sister had gone missing and to do a search. But when he did, Andre recalls the director responding by saying, He just told me no, that he wasn't going to uh, turn the, uh, the school upside down for, for this particular thing. John was only 14 years old at the time and living with his parents in St. John, New Brunswick when his sister went missing. He tells us about the first time he heard she was gone. I remember two things. One was um, I found out on November 11th. I was um, actually at a church service, you know, for Remembrance Day, and I came home from that service. It was a school function. I came home from that service. I was hanging up my clothes in my room, and that's when my parents came into the room and said that that Teresa was missing. And I just, I just felt completely alone. You know, my, you know, my brother wasn't even there. I didn't I didn't I didn't even have him because he was at school to, you know, kind of sound things off or anything. And he must have been feeling the same. God, how I felt. Think how he must have felt. Right. He's 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 in the middle of it completely alone. Doesn't know, you know, who to trust. His parents aren't there. And he's being forced to act very quickly. When the school refused to do a search for Teresa, her parents made their way to Quebec immediately with John in the backseat of the car. You know, when we had made the drive to Lennoxville and we were staying at this little motel called the, the Paisan. And the one thing I just remember, like coming out at twilight and, you know, just seeing the sky turning purple and, you know, that she was out there. That, that image of the, the, the green trees, like, turning black because the night's coming and the sky being purple, that's what I remember. Mr. Allure recalls other theories the school and police came up with, deeming it unnecessary to organize a search party for Teresa. <laughs> started with character assassination and putting us on the defense and they started with things like uh, uh, was Teresa our child or was she adopted? Rather than to locate Teresa, they were trying to throw up excuses and subterfuge and it, Teresa was in their opinion anywhere but in the vicinity of Lennoxville and Compton because if she was in the vicinity of Lennoxville and Compton it was their problem it was the problem of these institutions so if they could find any excuse to justify why she might not be there that's what they were going to do so immediately what's suggested is she's a runaway she's gone out west to visit her boyfriend Vlad, who at this time was in Calgary and hasn't told anyone. She's decided to cross the border and go on a road trip down to visit friends in Florida. She's pregnant. She's pregnant and she's gone to a monastery and she's she's, she's gonna be there until the child is born. And, all, and again, all these tactics to shame the victim. And the worst one that was, was put forward, and I know because my dad wrote it down, the director of Champlain College said to my parents, Teresa obviously is a girl with, with lesbian tendencies, and she's gone to a place where those kind of people go. Forget about what we think now 
gays, LGBT, um, Q, and, and, and you know, we're a very evolved society now. Back then, even using that word was intentionally used to stigmatize. So, you know, I'm not even going to answer the question, was, was my sister gay or not? It's irrelevant. Because that man had, had no knowledge of my sister's sexual preference, and he was deliberately trying to stigmatize the family. Meanwhile, Mrs. and Mr. Allure had no other choice but to trust the possible theories that the authorities had come up with and proceed to search local monasteries in hope of finding their possibly pregnant but alive daughter. They frantically searched anywhere there was a possible lead to her whereabouts. At this point, this is my parents kind of running around the eastern townships trying to get, you know, answers for themselves. So, so sure, you know, my dad did go to the local monastery, which is down around Owl's Head, and, you know, did knock on the door and say, do you have a young girl here? You know, they were very vulnerable and very prone to any suggestion. They'd never experienced anything like this. You, would, you were just being led by the nose, and I can see this from my dad's notes. Somebody describes a girl that looks like Teresa who's at a motel, and now we're two weeks into the disappearance. So, of course, my dad drives to that motel and shows her photo and all this. Missing persons pictures are being put up at the border. And then finally, this is going on, and a very inexperienced chief of police drops a story in the press that says Teresa Lore, her death might have had something to do with drugs. With, without any justification whatsoever. But again, it's, it's more victim-blaming and more stigmatization. What, and what he was saying was, maybe she overdosed. And again, it's like she was at a party and all this. So now it's not only Teresa's fault, it's students' fault. Well, this completely jeopardizes finding Teresa. What do you think the will is of a community to find her at that point? You know, at that point, people just kind of feel, well, she got what was coming to her. So any credit you might have had in the, or sympathy you might have had in the community to, to come together and organize a search party or something like this is shot all to hell. About a month goes by, and Teresa's parents were still unable to locate their teenage daughter anywhere, despite their perseverance. Mr. Allure recalls what an officer later advised him to do next. He said that he didn't believe that we should be wasting our time like that. We should go home from where we came from and that she would come out of the snowbank in the spring, and that's exactly what he said. So Mr. and Mrs. Allure did just that. They went back to their home in St. John, New Brunswick and waited and waited. They hoped and prayed that Teresa had indeed just run off to see her boyfriend in Calgary or friends in Florida, like the police officials suggested, that she had gone for a long visit to Montreal. As long as she was alive and well somewhere, that's all that mattered. But month after month after month went by, and still no word from Teresa. Christmas had come and gone, then Easter, and it was finally then, five and a half months later, after the snow had melted, the Teresa was found. John relived with us the exact moment his parents received the phone call from the police. It was Friday the 13th, April 1979. They were in Trenton, Ontario, spending the Easter long weekend 
with their grandparents and extended family. Shortly after receiving the call, John and his brother Andre were quickly whisked away to spend the night with their cousin. When they returned to their grandparents' home, he remembers his parents breaking the most devastating news he could have ever imagined. So finally around 4 o'clock, something like that, my, my cousin drops us off at my grandparents' place. We go in the back door as we always would, through the laundry room, past the kitchen. I look to my, my right and both my grandparents are sitting on a sofa and they're in tears. So that's when I'm like, ah, my God. So we walk down the hallway to the, the back bedroom where my parents typically stayed um, and they're sitting on, on the bed in tears. And that's, that's when they told us both that, um, that Teresa had been found and she was dead. At that moment, John felt completely numb. Unable to fully grasp what his parents had just told him, he was speechless. I had like a little Kodak camera. I went outside and I took pictures of the clouds and the blue sky. Something in me wanted to capture the moment that I knew that she had died. Teresa was found, face down, in a muddy bog, off the Coke River, wearing only her bra and underwear. Just two and a half kilometers down a gravel country side road, a short distance from where she was boarding. The snow had melted, and a local muskrat trapper named Robert Ride was the one to discover her. I was uh, doing a bit of muskrat trapping at the time, spring muskrat trapping. I uh, had a long weekend. It was the morning of Good Friday. I was just basically looking for a muskrat sign in the, in the water when I came upon the, the body. Teresa's scarf was located in a nearby farmer's field and her wallet was discovered a week later, 10 kilometers from where her body was found. Police transported Teresa's body to Montreal where an autopsy was performed in order to try and determine her cause of death. John told us that because she'd been in the water for so long, the coroners had a difficult time coming to any conclusions. Well, they were not able to determine an exact cause of death. She had some food particles in her esophagus. The autopsy said there were no apparent marks on her body of violence. So ultimately, her death is ruled violent death of undetermined means. Despite the fact that they, they do a toxicological uh, report on her internal organs and, and nothing comes back to suggest there's any drugs in her system. There was no signs of drugs found in Teresa's body. Police investigators had speculated that Teresa had possibly died of a drug overdose. That she'd gotten so high that she had taken off her clothes and had died in her sleep. They surmised that later students had discovered her and in a panic moved her body into a car and disposed of her in the nearby creek. When Teresa's classmate, Suzanne, was questioned about what she thought about that theory, she replied, And that's crazy. You couldn't kiss a boy on Friday night without the entire campus knowing about it on Saturday morning. There is no way that students 
could mastermind some kind of massive cover-up like this without anybody knowing about it. It's absolutely impossible. She smoked marijuana, just like most of the kids at that place did, but as far as I know, she did not do anything, take any other drugs than that. She smoked cigarettes. And John's viewpoint on that theory? Now, all of this is fantastic, amazing, but there's just one problem. There isn't any proof of it. There's no proof of any of it. So what happened? Where had Teresa gone after she missed the 6 p.m. shuttle bus that evening on November 3, 1978? Had she made an attempt to hitchhike like she had done so many times before? Had she tried to walk the 15 kilometers back to her residence? Or had she even managed to leave the campus? Why had police and school officials decided not to put together a search party for her at all? Why had they jumped to so many other possible conclusions except for the one that seemed the most probable? Join us for part two, where we'll discover other conceivable theories behind the disappearance of Teresa Allure and her death. When you'll also hear about a second autopsy report, destroyed evidence, along with a second eyewitness, who was one of the last people to have seen Teresa alive you'll hear about possible connections to other missing females and unsolved homicides in the same area, along with potential suspects. Thank you for joining us for the 11th episode of The Minds of Madness. As you may have noticed, this particular episode didn't follow our usual format, featuring ordinary people doing unthinkable things. And here's why. Through some of our interactions on Twitter, we came into contact with John Allure, the brother of Teresa, who you heard us speaking to in this episode. Over 20 years ago, John embarked on a lifelong mission to try and solve the cold case of his sister once and for all, and we felt compelled to help. Because it's been so long since Teresa died, her story has long faded from the media. Help us bring as much exposure as we can to the story, so we can help this family put all their questions surrounding Teresa's death to rest. It's been a few episodes since we've thanked our fantastic listeners for all the support they've shown. So this one is going to be slightly longer than usual episodes. So as our good friend Cambo from the incredible podcast True Crime Island says, Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. Most importantly, we would like to thank the following Patreon supporters for helping us sustain this podcast and ensuring we keep bringing you new shows. We would like to express our gratitude to the following listeners. Sam D., Marina, 
Jerry, Mark, Kai, Sam S., Megan, Allie, Christy from the Canadian True Crime Podcast, Jason, Mary, Susanna, Karen, Lainey from the True Crime Fan Club Podcast, Tara, and Christy. Thank you all, and remember, for as little as a dollar, you can help support this show by going to patreon.com and searching The Minds of Madness. We will be introducing some new rewards, including access to the raw interviews and show transcripts. Our Facebook discussion group family has been growing, and we are so thankful for all the feedback and support we receive from our friends in there. It's been really amazing to be able to get to know some of our listeners from all around the world. And in saying that, we'd love the opportunity to get to know more of you. You can find the discussion group by searching The Minds of Madness in Facebook. Last but not least, we would like to thank the following people for their fantastic reviews in iTunes, Stitcher, and beyond. Honestly, the response has been so overwhelming, we had to randomly pick a handful. Haile Jean, Morlunger, Tracy MSP, MM Harris 85, CP Puri 80, Tony Montana 19, Krista Liebert, Zomprongs, Sam C. Simpson, Nikki Thatcher, Kay Wick, Queen of Merlot, Lady Rivenwen, C. Trillium 23, Kringerly Gig, Jess Wen, J. Lambert 666, Steph UK, Cheebwhacker, Jax Leonard 87, Andy CP, Vampire Me, Fenian 1996, JK Finland, Zembalina 13, Joy 987, Rusty, Nenzia, Midwest Koala, Marison, Ryle 029, and Holly Hoffman. Thank you all that took the time to review the show. And now I would like to introduce to you a couple of podcasts that I personally listen to and really enjoy. Unconcluded? January 24th, 2006, Jennifer Kessie disappeared from her home in Orlando, Florida. Unconcluded is a real-time investigation into that disappearance. You can listen and subscribe on unconcluded.com. So we're still waiting for that one person to come through with the one bit of information that could bring Jennifer home. And car journey conversations. Hi, this is Catherine. And this is Shane on Car Journey Conversations. Come and join us on our weekly podcast as we discuss topics inspired by conversations in the car. Is being introverted really a bad thing? Have you ever had a lucid dream? Or discover if humans are being replaced by robots? Visit us at www.carjourneyconversations.com and let's take you on the journey with us. The Minds of Madness podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and all other major podcast apps. We can be found on Facebook under The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. Please subscribe, like, share, and review the show. And finally, I would like to thank Lainey from the True Crime Fan Club podcast who provided the voice to the disclaimer at the beginning of the show.